a factual data creation facility production. Hello and welcome to the OFNT podcast episode 195, which I'm calling the end of podcasting. Yeah, some in the podcasting industry are saying that podcasting is over. Well, I, along with others, are still here vying for precious ears, and we haven't heard the fat lady sing yet, so I'm of the opinion that it's not over. It's windy and raining outside here in the suburbs of New York City. Well, it's still better than snow. I hope wherever you are is experiencing better weather. Okay, enough babbling. Let's just get started here. Tech news. As the holiday season gets nearer, the tech news gets lighter because all of the major announcements have already been made. So I brought what I can find. First topic. The popular 23andMe genetic testing service has been hacked. What? At first, the company claimed 14,000 of their customers were compromised. Well, that number turned out to be a slight underestimation, as the real amount was 6.9 million customers whose information was stolen. What the hell? 23andMe then followed up that revelation by updating their terms of service that would force customers to give up their right to sue the company. What? The stolen data includes full names, genetic information, birth year, family names, and location. But in a shining example of the dumbing down of the Western population, most of these victims seemed not to care. What? Falsely thinking, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Well, I'm here to say that it does indeed matter. Criminal and state entities aside... This hacked info, which is already up for sale, according to the tech publication Wired, can be used by health and life insurance companies who will base the amount of money they charge you on these genetic markers, which can predict life expectancy and susceptibility to certain diseases. This applies not only to you, but all of your relatives, known and unknown, because that's all part of the information that was hacked. I don't even want to think about viruses tailored to only affect a certain genetic trait. The 23andMe hack is just one of the many hacks of people's health, financial, and other data. These companies who seemingly underfund their cybersecurity not only get hacked, but they hide the fact as long as possible and then purposely underreport the damage done. What consequences do these companies suffer? Not many to none. Everyone in my family, most recently my lovely wife, have been victims of corporate hacks. Myself, numerous times. The results of these hacks have me fighting off identity theft attempts every six months or so. I'm not a big fan of government regulation, but something's got to be done about this. Something that will really put the hurt on these companies that will force them to take cybersecurity serious. Perhaps because our own government here in the U.S. had its government employee database hacked, they are reluctant to take such action. Maybe some customers of 23andMe resided within the European Union will be spurred to take some real action against these hacked corporations. From CNBC comes the headline. Meta and Microsoft say they will buy AMD's new AI chip as an alternative to NVIDIA's. Well, hang on. Didn't Microsoft just announce their own AI chip a few weeks ago? Yes. 
I'm confused. Well, I should say more confused than usual. <laughs> anyway, the new chip is based on new architectures whose main feature is the onboard 192 HB HBM3 memory, which transfers data faster, making it better for using large AI models. Okay. To go along with the new MI300X chip, AMD says it has beefed up and improved the accompanying ROCM software suite in order to bring it up to the level of rival NVIDIA's CUDA software. No pricing was given at this time for the MI300X chip, but the NVIDIA competitor goes for $40,000 a pop. Wow. And that's a lot of dough, as the teenagers say. No. I have to ask, where is Intel in all this? Well, they're probably still attempting to stretch out the performance of its ancient x86 architecture. NBC has some good news. Meta defaults Facebook and Messenger to end-to-end -end encryption despite objections, reads the headline. Not only are one-to-one -one messages and calls using Messenger to be encrypted, but Meta is using the Signal open source protocol for that encryption. Not some homebrewed protocol that no one can prove if it works or not. The end-to-end -end encryption is not on group chats, though. At least not yet. The only ones not celebrating this news are the usual government-funded organizations and law enforcement agencies who say this will endanger, and wait for it, the children. Uh -oh. What these entities are really concerned about is that government agencies and law enforcement will be unable to snoop around as easily as before. They really don't care about the children. Well, I would never thought I would say this, but good job, Meta. Although I still won't be putting any of your software on any of my computing or communication devices. And speaking of government spying, a developing story came to light late last week. It seems governments are snooping on push notifications to smart devices, iOS and Android included, in order to link user IDs to accounts and gain metadata. Neither Apple or Google denied this, with Apple even going as far as saying that the government ordered them not to disclose this to the public. Google just gave the standard lawyer-written, we protect our customers' data, blah blah statement. This all came to light because of an anonymous tip to Senator Roy Wyden of the U.S. Congress. Unlike iMessage and Google Messages, push notifications are sent in the clear from Apple and Google servers to your phone and other devices. Here's hoping that this will move these companies to encrypt push notifications. This will force the government to come up with another way to spy on their populaces. This is another example of your tax money at work. <laughs> Boy. I neglected reporting on the newest attempt in bringing Apple's iMessage to Android because what has just happened was what I thought was going to happen, but quicker. The background is that some 16-year-old high school student who obviously doesn't have a girl or boyfriend, a kid, get out and live your life, managed to reverse engineer the giant fruit company's iMessage platform and sell off the info to a company named Beeper, which was founded by Eric Mijkowski of Pebble fame. You do remember the Pebble smartwatch, don't you? No. Beeper first sold an app that you installed on both your phone and computer which would basically steal authentication keys from random Mac owners in order to enable iMessage to work on your Android phone. Well, as long as the main app was running on your computer. Last week, Beeper released Beeper Mini, which allows you to just run an app on your Android phone to accomplish this. The app will spoof an iPhone ID key and register it with Apple servers. This will, in turn, 
make the Apple server think your Android phone is an iPhone. As the rejoicing YouTube tech channels demonstrated, this method worked great and the fact that no computer was needed was a bonus. There are laws on the books which protect reverse engineering, so the tech world assumed that finally a bulletproof implementation of iMessage had arrived. Like the failed nothing app before it, the tech world cheered Bieber as heroes. I thought Apple would have immediately unleashed the company's army of high-paid corporate lawyers to put the kibosh on Beeper, but hey, that didn't happen. At least not yet. All this backstory leads to the following headline from Engadget. Beeper Mini's iMessage integration is on the fritz. Well, go figure. It appears Apple has done something server-side to put a halt to Beeper Mini's Android implementation of iMessage. Well, that doesn't mean Apple won't be sicking their lawyers on Beeper. I mean, the first computer-bound app actually stole authentication keys from real Mac users without their knowledge or permission, while Beeper Mini provided false keys directly to Apple servers. Both methods are shady, if not outright illegal, especially the Mac key thefts of the original app. I'd wager Beeper will be receiving a cease and desist notice real soon now with a lawsuit to follow. As for the high school student who started this all by reverse engineering iMessage, Apple will probably hire he, she, them if, if Apple is smart. This kid has skills which Apple can utilize. Remember, iMessage runs on Apple servers, and there isn't a justification for basically forcing Apple into accepting the increased traffic this would have brought them. Well, that's my opinion anyway. What do you think about this? And finally, for the tech section, the rumors for an incoming 12-inch iPad Air are getting stronger by the day, with the Bloomberg organization joining the chorus of analysts and leakers in saying it's indeed on the way. This is a good thing, because if the other rumors of the new iPad Pros are true, the price they'll be selling for will make them unattainable for common, ordinary folk, like myself. Not that I'm planning on giving up my M2-chipped 11-inch iPad Pro anytime soon iPads, like iPhones, last a very long time. I should be getting operating system updates for another three years at least. In fact, my old 2017 12-inch iPad Pro that I gave to my son when I got my now-traded-in iPad Air back in what one might call the day is still going strong and running the latest version of iPad OS, version 17.1.2. Well, at least a subset of the latest version of that operating system. The point being that the thing is ancient now. I received it as a gift for Father's Day from my daughter Janet back in 2017. Now I must admit that sometimes when I see him using that old iPad, I kind of become envious of the screen real estate it has, you know, versus my current 11-inch iPad Pro, despite Touch ID and the huge bezels of it. Then again, that's why Santa's bringing me that 15-inch MacBook Air for Christmas this year. To sum up, I can see an M3 or M4 chipped iPad Air in my future. Hear that, son? This most likely means an M2 11-inch iPad Pro in your future. Ah, don't get your hopes up. I'll most likely be trading the Pro towards that future 12-inch iPad Air. (laughs) Tech I'm using. The delivery of my 15-inch MacBook Air last week has prompted the return to Apple for trade-in of my old Intel chip-based Touch Bar-equipped MacBook Pro. While boxing the old beast up, I felt a little pang of nostalgia for it. Unlike most, I appreciated and enjoyed the oft-criticized Touch Bar, especially while using Apple's Pages word processor on it. 
Like the Pages app on an iPad, you can correct misspellings on the fly with just a touch. And that's obviously something that can't be accomplished on a Mac equipped without one. The touch bar was very appropriate for my hunt and pick style of typing, which has me looking at the keyboard, hence the area where the touch bar was located. I can see why a touch typist wouldn't value it, though. They having to take their eyes off from the screen to engage with it. That MacBook Pro was the second I have owned, the first being a pre-touch bar model that had the misfortune of being the first equipped with the awful first-generation butterfly keyboard. You know, that, that keyboard managed to feel even worse than my circa 1983 Tandy Radio Shack color computer, too, if you even recall that model. The touch bar equipped MacBook Pro had the newly updated and last version of that failed keyboard system, which was improved enough to make the new Pro feel like a giant upgrade, at least to me. Until the arrival of my Mac Mini setup, complete with a Logitech mechanical keyboard, which is key, I did most of my writing and general computing on that machine. When I got my fingers, pun intended, on that new keyboard, I hardly used the MacBook Pro. I'm just hoping that the new MacBook Air's keyboard is an improvement over the Butterfly Keyboard Equip Pro. I did test out the new Air's keyboard a couple of times, and it left me kind of unimpressed. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great in my opinion. Well, time will tell. All this got me to thinking about how I get attached to some tech hardware. Not all of it, but some of it. My first attachment to tech hardware was an old candy bar-style Nokia phone. That phone was the first one I had equipped with internet connectivity. I held on to that thing for years before getting myself a Nokia E62, which was not quite a smartphone, but almost there. When smartphones did become a thing, I went through a bevy of models. A Samsung Blackjack running Windows CE, which I loathed. A Blackberry, which I couldn't wait to get rid of. A Nokia E72, which was disappointing because Nokia had gimped that phone with not enough memory. I also had a Nexus One, which I considered garbage and soured me on the Android operating system. And then I got a Nokia N8. I don't know what it was about that phone, but I loved it. Of course, the N8 met its demise along with Symbian, the operating system that the phone ran on, because Nokia itself went over to Windows Phone. That's when I switched to the Nokia 925. Besides the snappiness of the Windows Phone operating system, the 925 had that solid feeling that I love. I hung on to that Nokia until the demise of Windows Phone was apparent. By that time, almost all of my family had succumbed to the iPhone juggernaut, with my son and I the last holdouts, he with Android. My lovely wife then gifted me an Apple iPhone 4S for my birthday, and while I didn't care for iOS at that time, I loved the look and feel of that phone, and it had that same solid feel that the Nokia 925 had. At that time, I carried the iPhone for personal use while having a work phone, and it was usually an Android model, but sometimes I had a cheap BlackBerry. I had a Nexus 6, which was my favorite Android phone, and a Samsung Galaxy 8, which I didn't care for, a Nexus 6P, which I considered garbage, and a Pixel 2, which I kept until my retirement last year. And of course, over the years, I've had the iPhone 5S, 6, 8, 11, 13, and now 15 Pro Max. None of this multitude of iPhones or other brands I've used over the years had me developing the attachment I had to those Nokia phones and the iPhone 4S. My current 15 Pro Max comes close to those phones, but not quite. Perhaps over the years I've just become jaded towards smartphones. Have you ever grown an attachment to any tech devices? To wrap up this section, 
No, I still haven't installed those two Blink outdoor cameras I purchased about a month ago. I just can't seem to motivate myself to do so. I'm happy with my Mac Mini, Logitech keyboard, and LG monitor setup, which has brought me into the modern era of desktop computing. No beach balls of death for me any longer. <laughs> the only thing I'm not satisfied with is the magic mouse I'm using. I'll just await the inevitable after Christmas sales before I decide what to replace it with. And talking about awaiting, the only piece of Apple hardware I'm looking forward to is the Apple Watch 10, which is rumored to be a total redesign with blood pressure monitoring added to its health feature lineup. I also hope the new model's battery life is greatly extended. Entertainment news. Yeah, move along now. Nothing to see here. The major studios have all but shot their loads with only the new Aquaman movie left to be released before the end of the year, and that's expected to have a disastrous run in the theaters. I'll be switching to holiday-themed flicks for now. Oh, we did manage to watch the Eddie Murphy vehicle, Candy Cane Lane, on Netflix last week. The movie started off great, but eh, quickly ran out of steam in Good Humor Bites midpoint with jokes crafted to appeal to the so-called modern audiences. If you get my drift... Caucasian characters were all written to make them seem goofy, if not stupid. Even female examples. Well, at least the writers painted with a broad brush on that particular character development. Other than that, I can't think of anything else to say about uh, the world of entertainment this week, which is probably a good thing, at least for them. Podcast News Spotify to cut 17% of its workforce in third layoff this year, Despite Taylor Swift's success on the platform, reads the very long headline from Fox Business. That 17% amounts to some 1,500 jobs to be cut. Yeah, a nice holiday gift for those affected. Merry Christmas indeed. Bah! Humbug! I mean, the company couldn't have waited until after the new year before doing this? And all those firings came right after Spotify finally turned a profit during the third quarter of this year. CEO Daniel Eck blamed the current economic conditions as the reason for these layoffs, parroting the excuse of other tech firms that have given the same excuse for laying off large numbers of workers this year, along with the old, we hired too many people during the pandemic thing. It's as if these companies assumed that the COVID situation was going to last a lot longer than it did. Hmm. Anyway, what does this situation have to do with podcasting, you may ask? Well, I'd respond with, what does Taylor Swift have to do with any of this either? I just don't get this whole Taylor Swift thing. If you do, can you please explain it to me? I'd also tell you that many of those 1,500 positions lost are from Spotify's podcasting division. Along with the layoffs, Spotify canceled two award-winning podcasts which were exclusive to the platform. The Heavyweight and Stolen Podcasts. I guess the folks that worked on these shows will have to go back to the national public radio culture they sprang from and try to find a job over there and at a substantial pay cut. Or they can join the chorus of whining NPR alumni who departed that elite mouthpiece organization for higher pay who now find themselves unemployed. Maybe they can all get together and start a new podcast about being fired. Spotify was attempting to take over podcasting when all these folks were hired, and they, Spotify threw all sorts of crazy money at these NPR types for exclusive shows. 
Some of these productions cost over $200,000 per episode. Whoa! And that's just ridiculous, am I right? Yes. I don't care how many awards these shows were given by their fellow elites. If no one's listening, they're just a waste of money. Long ago, an Asian bar girl gave me some advice. She told me, no money, no honey, which I considered sage advice, and I've lived by that ever since. <laughs> Spotify doesn't seem to be in a hurry to get rid of what are probably the only two platform exclusive shows left, them being the Joe Rogan Experience and the Call Me Daddy podcast. Though, along with the Taylor Swift thing, I don't understand the Call Me Daddy podcast either. Hey, but that's just me. The difference is that Joe Rogan and Call Me Daddy bring in something called revenue. Something foreign to employees who work for organizations such as NPR and its Dispora, who are used to being handed money by the government and big multinational corporations in order to survive. Self-proclaimed podcasting incorporated pundits see this Spotify situation as dire for the industry and are proclaiming that podcasting is over. No. I agree that the days of highly funded celebrity hosted shows are in fact over. Returning podcasting back to the independents, who do podcasts not expecting to become rich from it, just doing it for the joy of doing so. Now, there's still many independents out there who do podcasts thinking they'll make a really good living from it. Uh -huh. But like the big moneyed corporate back shows, they too are falling off. While the money and its chasers are leaving, the heart of podcasting still remains. I don't know what to call this because it's neither a rant nor a story. So anyway, whatever this is, here we go. I used to enjoy drinking alcoholic beverages with beer being my poison of choice. I started drinking as a teenager and once realizing that I was very good at it, it became a lifelong vice. That is until right after the pandemic. China! I suddenly came to the conclusion that I didn't enjoy drinking any longer. That and I didn't really get drunk when I was drinking. I just got a headache and felt tired. I assumed that I had just grown out of it, or maybe just my age. The last alcohol drink I've had was last New Year's Eve. I drank one beer, a couple of shots of Jack Daniels, and a champagne at midnight. After that, I still had no desire to drink. Before that, I have only drank on New Year's Eve since 2020. This year, something peculiar happened. The urge to partake in alcohol seemed to be returning, slowly but surely. I became very tempted to down a few on the night of my last birthday, which was considered a landmark occasion. Well, I didn't fall to that temptation, but it persisted anyway. I had intended to drink on the Thanksgiving holiday, but the urge to do so had again subsided. I couldn't understand why this urge had come and then left me. Well, last week I was perusing a news app and decided on reading an item whose headline was, Scientists have figured out why people suffer headaches when drinking red wine. Now, I don't know why I decided to read that article, but I did. It stated that red wine contains a plant flavanol called quercetin. The quercetin in red wine interferes with the receptors in human bodies responsible for making you have that buzz feeling, and instead, you get a headache. Well, it just so happens that I started consuming quercetin in supplement form back in, you guessed it, 2020, on the advice of an article written by a doctor who claimed it could help fight off the COVID virus. China. But why did the urge for alcohol come back briefly during October? Well, it just so happens that I ran out of quercetin during that time period, 
because it was backordered from Amazon, who was and is my supplier. In early November, I started taking the supplement once again, and with it, the urge to throw back a few subsided again. I can't prove any of this, but the ingestion of quercetin does seem to coincide with these events. What do you think? Well, that music is playing again in, on this rainy night here in New York. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed making it for you. If you like what you heard, you can make a donation using the link in the show notes. Any and all donations will be greatly appreciated. You can always reach me at OFNTpodcast at gmail.com only if you're so inclined. I'd enjoy hearing from you. Remember, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. Hey, the show's over and it's raining cats and dogs out there. Whatever that means. Anyway, you're getting soaked, so get off my lawn and go home. Stay skeptical. I'm out. See ya! For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.